You know, um, over this summer during our series, we've had several uh, of the pastors be able to come and share with you uh, from this uh, viral series of the book of Acts. And today I'm excited about in, in introducing to you someone you probably already know, but I want to introduce them anyway. About uh, the year 2009, in Master's Commission, a young lady uh, came from Florida. Uh, she had met some of our graduates that were down working at a camp, and she came to try Master's Commission. And I'll be honest with you, the first time I met her, I knew that she was a leader. I couldn't tell if she was going to be a leader of rebellion or a leader of, of God's people. But after, during that first year, we finally got clarification on that, and she became what we'd say, this is a keeper. And we are so excited today to be able to have one of our Kingwood pastors, our first female pastor in Kingwood history, to come and be able to share today, and that is Pastor Amber Gaddis. Amber, come on. your Bible. I'm so excited to continue in our series in Acts. So if you brought your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9. And uh, before we get started this morning, I want to ask you a question. How many of you know somebody, and now don't point to the person next to you, but how many of you know somebody that always has to be right? Come on, let's be honest this morning. We're in church. If you know somebody who always has to be right, yeah? Okay. So uh, I know a, a couple people like that that always have to be right about, no, about everything, right? Like the weather, you're like, it's raining. They're like, no, it's sunny with, with rain. Um, you know, they always have to be right. And I remember the first time I met somebody like this, I was in the fourth grade. I had just moved uh, from one house in New Jersey to another, and I was starting fourth grade at Copper Hill Elementary School. Go Cougars. And uh, I was super excited, but my first day of class, I met a girl named Tatum. And Tatum was what you would call... Um, trying to think of a really good word, obnoxious, uh, she always had to be right. Uh, no, no matter what it was we were doing, we could be playing hopscotch, we could be playing with pogs, we could be playing uh, just whatever we were playing, her way was the right way to play it. And uh, I really wanted to like Tatum, I wanted to be her friend, uh, but she made it really difficult. And uh, so I don't know if Tatum's parents um, wanted to empower her to be a leader, or uh, maybe she was like an only child, uh, so she didn't have siblings to show her the error of her ways. But uh, Tatum always had to be right. And one day, it was about the middle of the school year, uh, we were lining up to go to recess, and uh, I was kind of late to get in line because I'm not an ultra-organized person. And um, I remember I was sitting at my desk cramming papers in there, because um, if, if you know anything, if you just push hard enough, all those papers will go back. Um, so I'm cramming papers into my desk, and I look over, and I see that Tatum's chair was not pushed under her desk. Oh, yes. Our teacher uh, had one, one big rule, and it was always push your chair in. And Tatum had not broken a rule all year. And so this was my moment, right? Like, this was my moment to get Tatum, to prove her wrong, to prove the error of her ways. And so I could barely contain myself. And I'm like, Miss Mulry, Miss Mulry, Tatum forgot to push her chair in, right? And I hear this, like, chorus of, ooh, from all my classmates. Um, I'm not exactly, like, super athletic. I've never, like, won a game or, like, you know, scored a touchdown. Uh, but in that moment, I felt like a superhero, right? 
So I remember I'm just standing there basking in the glory of catching Tatum in the air of her ways. And uh, as, you know, everybody's excited and my teacher's about to get onto her, Tatum just has a full-on meltdown, right? She, she's just crying. She's like, I know, I did it, I did it, I did it right. Um, and I was like, no, you didn't. You did it wrong. You got it wrong, Tatum. Um, I, I actually still talk to Tatum, and uh, we make fun of her for that still. But uh, <laughs> that day at recess, she even just insisted on the fact uh, that she was right. And this morning, uh, as we turn our attention to Acts 9, we're going to look at a man who always thought that his way was the right way, that, that you can say was bent on having his way. Um, and if you've looked at the book of Acts before, uh, you probably know who I'm talking about. But this man that we're going to talk about all morning, his name was Saul. Now, we're first introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 7 um, as, as Stephen's dying a, a martyr's death. And at uh, the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we, we read this like two-sentence description that Saul is at work destroying the church. Uh, in, in case um, uh, we, we didn't know much about Saul already, we, all we know is that uh, Saul is a force to be reckoned with. Right? And before we look at what many consider to be uh, the pivotal moment of the early church and definitely the biggest moment of Saul's life, I want to give you just a couple of facts or a couple of things to know about Saul. So uh, if you brought something to take notes with, uh, a piece of paper and a pen or a phone, um, if you brought your phone. Okay, you all brought your phone. Uh, so if you have your phone, uh, go ahead and open up to your notes app. And I want to give you just a little bit of a biography on Saul. If Saul had an Instagram, uh, this would be what would be like right under his picture, okay? Um, So here's the first thing we learn about Saul. Saul was highly intelligent. Uh, So he's at work destroying the church, so clearly he's, he's smart, he has a plan. But Saul is from a town called Tarsus. And Tarsus was known for its university. It was known for being a hub of education. The university in Tarsus would have kind of been in comparison with our modern day like Harvard or Yale or Princeton. So Saul was surrounded from a very young age by by education. So so Saul was highly intelligent. The second thing we learn from Saul is that he was supremely educated. Saul's Jewish heritage uh, would have ensured that he would have quality Jewish training and education. Uh, Jewish people are very serious about uh, conserving and and teaching and passing on um, all of their their traditions. And uh, so much so that we read later on in Acts chapter 22 that that Saul had sat under one of the best teachers, and his name was Gamaliel. Aren't you glad that's not your name? Um, His name was Gamaliel. And uh, he was such a good teacher that the, the, he had like a really cute little nickname, um, and it was the beauty of the law. Not a great nickname. But Gamaliel had this nickname because he had this incredible ability uh, to teach, and people loved to sit and, and hear him talk. And so during uh, this part of Saul's life, when he was about 13 um, on through his teen years, he would have sat under uh, Gamaliel and learned uh, Jewish history and theology, and Saul also um, would have memorized massive portions of the Old Testament. So Saul's highly intelligent, he's supremely educated, and the third thing we have to know is Saul was connected, right? And, and I'm not talking about like Saul knew where you could buy essential oils or lip scents, but um, Saul knew, uh, Saul was very connected because he came from a really strong family, in Bible times, who, who your parents were was a big deal. Who your grandparents were, where, where you came from was a big deal. 
And so Saul, uh, Saul came from a strong family. His life was marked by education, but also his family background. Saul's father was a Roman citizen, and his father was also a Jew and a Pharisee. So, so it's, it's kind of needless to say, but, but Saul was, was a Jew of the Jews. He could match zealous credentials with anybody. So um, we, we read all these things about Saul, and, and we see he's, he's educated, he's intelligent, he, he's got the right Jewish family. But another significant part of Saul's story is this. Saul was determined to wipe out Christianity. Uh, scripture tells us that, that Saul is, is zealous about this. He's determined uh, to wipe out Christianity, that, that this wasn't a, a game, this wasn't just something fun to him, but instead he's convinced that Christianity is heresy, that it's the defamation of the character of God and the traditions of Judaism. And he feels that it's his duty as a good Jew to put an end to this. So knowing all of this about Saul, this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. So if you have your Bible, go ahead uh, and turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Here we go. Uh, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. In case we already didn't know that Saul was a man on a mission, right? Uh, the, these first two verses of Acts 9 make it really clear to us. Uh, so much so that in, in verses 1 and 2, Luke writes when he's writing Acts, he uses this term breathing out. And if you were to look at it in the, in the Greek, which the New Testament was originally written in, uh, it's actually not breathing out. Like, it's not like this panting, right, when you go to check the mail on a hot Alabama summer day, right? Amen? You're like sweating by the time you get back from the bottom of the driveway. Uh, so <laughs> that's not what he's referring to. Instead, it's almost like breathing in. Like with every breath that Saul breathes in, he's breathing in like, uh, like hate and threats and murder and just how much he can't stand these people. With every inhale, it's like there's more, more hate and more anger and more chaos within Saul's mind and in his soul. And I think Luke is so, so intentional when he tells us this because we have to know that this isn't like a Saturday afternoon hobby for Saul, right? Like he doesn't just decide that, you know, the nice thing to do this afternoon would to, uh, go find all the followers of Jesus and put them in jail. Um, but, but he's serious about it. It's consuming all of who he is. And in case you're still not convinced that, that Saul is serious about this, uh, verses 1 and, and 2 tell us that, that Saul's headed to Damascus. Now, in case you aren't caught up on your early church geography, uh, from where Saul was at that present moment to Damascus was a 135-mile journey. Uh, and that, that doesn't seem that far to us, right? Like, say, for instance, after church today, uh, you wanted to go get lunch 135 miles away, um, I would, I would say yes, but I'd be really concerned because we have great food options, right, within like a 30-minute drive. Uh, but if you and I were to go to lunch today, uh, we, we would hop in the car, we would turn on the AC, amen, um, and uh, we would plug in an aux cord and we'd be listening to something real good as, as we drive down the road, and we would get to where we were going in about two hours or so. But Saul didn't really have that luxury, right? There's no car, there's no train, there's no plane, there's no bicycle, there's no hoverboard, there's no skateboard, there's no scooter, there, there's your feet and a camel, okay? Um, I've only ridden a camel one time, 
but it was enough for me to know that I don't want to do it again. <laughs> okay, it was not exactly as comfortable as my car. But, but Saul is so, so, so focused, and he's so, so set on the fact that he has to go put an end to this, that he goes 135 miles by foot or donkey or camel to, to get there. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you this morning. Um, sometimes I have a really hard time being motivated to go from my couch to the fridge, and, and that's a pretty big motivation for me, okay? Uh, sometimes I have a hard time being motivated just to do that. But Saul is so intent on this. He's so focused on going to Damascus that, that he just goes. He powers through, and he, he's off, and he's on a trip. And he's headed to Damascus. So Saul is making his way to Damascus, and he's full of hate, and he's full of passion for his cause. But, but look at verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Apparently Saul forgot to check the James Spann weather warning um, that morning, or he would have known, right? Uh, but, but look at verse 4. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. This was obviously not the day Saul had envisioned, right? He's on the road to Damascus. He's probably 120 miles in, and he's focused on taking a hot shower. Come on, somebody, for a shower. And he, he sees a meal of fried chicken and a Sister Schubert's roll, right? It, it's within his reach, and, and he's, he's ready, and he's focused, and, and he's on his way. And just as his goal, just as the thing he's looking for is within his reach, he, he's knocked down. He loses his eyesight with one blinding light. All was dark and all remained dark. And with one deafening statement from heaven, he discovered that everything he believed to be true and everything he believed to be right was false. That Jesus wasn't the enemy. Jesus was Lord. Uh, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, which you should because people who take notes get to go into heaven first. It's like a fast pass. <laughs> that is not biblically true, but I really want it to be. Uh, I love to take notes. But if you're taking notes this morning, I just want to give you three thoughts we can learn from Saul's life that I think that we can apply to our life, that, that on this road to Damascus isn't just a, a, a history story, but instead is truth for our lives. So if you're taking notes, the first one is this. God can get the attention of the most unlikely of people. God can get the attention of the most likely of people. I, I can't help but think uh, this moment with Saul as he's headed to Damascus to take care of business. And he's so focused on getting their attention and, and showing them the error of their ways that he, his attention is on everything but Jesus. Instead, his attention's on his own chaos and rage and pride and anger that he's totally unaware that it's him who needs to pay attention. God was actively at work in Saul's life before this moment, even though Saul didn't notice. But on this day, on this road, God got Saul's full attention. I think we live in a day and an age that when we talk about giving our attention to something, it's normally birthed out of a place of lack, right? Well, if I had more time, I, I would give some of my time and my attention to this. Or if I, just, if I, could, if I had more space, I, I would be open to maybe what God wants to do in my life. 
and we can feel like we, we can barely focus on the things that we currently have to pay attention to. It can feel like we have no space to absorb or give our attention to anything else. That we're good the way we are. That if we attempt to put one more thing on the tray of life, it's just going to fall over. And, every, and throw everything off balance. That it's best to just keep our heads down and do what we have to do. But this morning, in, in the middle of Acts 9, I think God wants to remind us that not only is he capable, but he's able and longing to get the attention of the unlikely. Uh, I think for some of us in this room, we've, we've prayed prayers over and over for friends and for family members that they've come to know Jesus, that they know him like we know him. And this morning, I think God wants to remind you that he's still capable. That even though you've deemed it unlikely and like it'll never happen, that he's the God with big capable arms. Maybe the unlikely person is that person you go to work with. And it seems like you, you can't even figure out some days how they're functioning because of their life. But, but just like Saul, God wants to get their attention too. Or maybe it's somebody you know that's stuck in their own dysfunction and addiction. This morning, God wants to remind you that he's fully capable of getting their attention. Or maybe that unlikely person is you. Maybe you, you came here this morning because this is what your family does on Sunday. Or you came here because somebody asked you to. And I think maybe, just maybe, in the middle of, of July of 2018, God might be trying to get your attention. Not because he's mad at you or frustrated with you, but because he wants to offer you a life that's better than, than struggling and better than just trying to live in a survival mode. So many times we, we put our heads down and do what we got to do, but God is inviting us this morning to look up. I know maybe you're thinking, Amber, that's, that's a lot easier said than done. True. But it's, it's in moments where we stop and we, we put a pause on all the busyness and all the noise. That, and we choose to put our attention back to God. That we're able to see him at work. God hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forgotten about your life. Instead, he's trying to get your attention. So, so God now clearly has Saul's attention, right? He, he's hit him with this huge blinding light and he can't see and he can't eat. And this is where we pick back up in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. If you're taking notes this morning, the second point I want to give you is God delights in using the unlikely. God delights in using the unlikely. Uh, growing up, my family, uh, we didn't watch a ton of TV, but when we did, uh, we were normally watching America's Funniest Home Videos. Um, I guess like the 2018 version is like fail videos, right? These, these videos where you, you see people trying to do crazy stunts or like a puppy does a backflip or, uh, you know, grandma's like holding a birthday cake and like a football just barely misses her, right? Uh, and I, I loved watching these videos because we would just sit for hours and laugh and laugh and laugh. But my favorite type of video when we would watch America's Funniest Home Videos 
was any video that, like, in my brain, I was like, okay, this is how this video is going to end. And then it ends, like, completely different, right? This is a guy on rollerblades coming down a hill, and you're like, he's going to break all of his face, right? There, there is no way that he's walking out of there with one tooth left in his head, right? And at the last minute, somehow he defies the laws of science and gravity, right? And he, like, pulls himself back up. Or it's the type of video where a dog goes to jump from one couch to the other, and there's no way that that little chihuahua is going to make it. And at the last second, somehow it just shoots across the living room and lands perfectly on a pillow. Uh, I, love, I love watching those kinds of videos because they interrupt what I think, right? They interrupt the way I think sh- things should be. They interrupt the natural thought pattern in my brain. And I love this portion of scripture we just read because it kind of feels the same, right? If I'm God and I'm sending somebody to go talk to Saul, the guy who's trying to like get rid of everybody— I'm going to assemble some kind of early church version of the Avengers, right? Saul is Thanos. We are the Avengers, okay? But, but that's not what God chooses to do. Instead, God uses Ananias. And nonetheless, Ananias has this vision, and God instructs him to go and see Saul. And he tells Ananias that when he gets there, he's going to lay his hands on, on Saul, and his eyesight's going to be restored. Now, if that was all we got of the conversation between Ananias and God, that would still be a really cool moment, right? God promises him that as he lays his hand, he's going to do a miracle. But what I love about the Bible and I love about this story is that we get a little bit more of the conversation, right? So look at Ananias' response to God in verse 13, right? God's like, you're going to go and you're going to go lay hands on the murderer and the, the crazy guy. And uh, this, is, this is Ananias' response. Uh, Lord? Now, we don't get a lot of emotion, right, in the Bible. We don't get to know the tone, and uh, we don't know exactly how he said it. But I can't help but imagine that, that there's kind of some, some uneasiness about, about Ananias, right? Like, he's kind of uncertain, like, Lord, uh, hey, hey, um, I know you're God, but uh, in case you don't know, but, but you know everything, but just in case— uh, this guy is trying to kill everybody and put him in jail, uh, and they're the people that you like a whole lot. Just, just wanted to let you know, you're God, I'm not, right? There's kind of this uneasiness. And he, he points out what seems like the elephant in the room. But here's what I love about Ananias. Despite his own hesitation, despite in his heart him going, this is going to not end well, right? He doesn't look for the emergency exit. He doesn't look for a way out. We don't see him talk to God for the next 45 minutes about why he's not the guy for the job. Instead, even though it's not immediate, he is obedient to what God asks him to do. If I'm honest, I I wish I just had the obedience of Ananias sometimes, right? Sometimes I want to say yes to what God's asking me to do, but I, I sit there and I give myself a list of reasons why I'm not the girl for the job. Or I'll convince myself and talk myself out of what God's asked me to do, right? For instance, have you ever been somewhere and God's like, hey, go talk to that person. And then you stand there like, mm-mm, hard pass, God. Not going to happen. Probably not today, right? And we sit there and we, we tell ourselves all these reasons why we shouldn't do it. And that person has long gone, right? They've ordered their coffee or they got their bagel and they're in their car and they're halfway down the road. But, but so many times we'll sit and we'll talk ourselves out of these things. Or sometimes, maybe, maybe you've experienced this, you've been in a room like this, 
or you've been at a conference and you've, you felt the Holy Spirit moving and you felt God calling you to something bigger than yourself and you're like, yes, Jesus, that sounds awesome, right? And we respond to the altar call and we cry and we're like, yes, God, I'm with you. And before we make it to our car, we've talked ourselves out of doing that very thing God's asked us to do, right? That's for everybody else. That's for all the people I follow on Instagram. That's for that family that, that I know, but it's not for me. And I think the truth is this morning that we can pull from Acts 9 is God loves using the unlikely. God loves using the unlikely. And I think this morning, part of the invitation for us is to move past uncertainty of whether or not we're liked or whether or not we're good enough or strong enough or capable enough and instead take hold of the fact that God loves using the unlikely. I doubt that Ananias felt like he was the best fit for the job. Because if you really study Acts, you'll learn that Ananias, we don't hear about him again, right? We don't have a holiday. We don't have Ananias Day where we all eat cake and banana pudding together, right? We, Ananias doesn't get a book of the Bible. He's not considered in the list of the heroes of the faith. Instead, Ananias was just faithful to be obedient to God's call on his life that day. And so often we, we hold ourselves back because we, we feel like we have to meet this laundry list of expectations before we can be obedient. And here's the truth. God delights in using you. Here's why I think God loves using unlikely people. Because it confuses the people around us, right? Right? Like think of somebody you know that was real crazy... And then God does this incredible work in their life and, and they're changed and healed and set free and changed forever. And then they go to work the next day, right? Or, or they're going to work as this pro God's doing this process in their life. And people are like, hold on, hold on. You used to be like that. You used to talk like that. But now you're like this. God loves using the unlikely. He loves using a changed life that's obedient as Jesus picked me. I was 17 when I um, became a Christian, when I, when I really learned what it was to be a follower of Jesus. And I was right at the end of my junior year of high school. And uh, Pastor Mark alluded to it very kindly, but, but I was living in rebellion and I was a jerk, okay? <laughs> I, I was not a nice person. Um, I had some, some things happen in my family that had really hardened my heart and hardened who I was. And I felt like if I could just hurt people before they hurt me, then I would be okay. And so when I have this encounter with Jesus at 17, I go back to school and I stop doing the things I had always done. And can I tell you what? People did not believe me. I'd be like, hey, you want to come to church? And they would laugh like it was a joke. They'd be like, Amber, for real? What? Church? And, and it wasn't until halfway through my senior year that people actually believed that, that God had done this transformation in my life. So why not us? Why not the unlikelies? You aren't your past, so grab hold of your future. Listen, the middle of the summer is the best place to grab hold of this. You want to know why? Because students in the room, you, you can kind of try it out before you go back to school. Right? Your coworkers are on vacation. So, so why not? Why not embrace it? Why not go, God, I'm unlikely, but I'm willing. And God knew the same was true for Saul. So much so that look again with me at verse 15. This, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings 
and to the people of Israel. God had plans for Saul despite his past, despite what other people thought or said. Thankfully, guys, we serve a God who isn't limited by, by our faults, that isn't limited by our past or our determinations to do things our own way. But instead, he sees to the core of who we are. So Ananias has received God's instructions and he's headed Saul's way. And we look at verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Which leads me to my last point if you're taking notes. True strength is found in an unlikely place. A life yielded to the power and control of God. Before these last couple of days, Saul thought his power and his identity and his security came from all the stuff he knew. From his intelligence, from his family background, from, from the fact that, that he had a, a family with a, a strong religious standing. But when he came face to face with Jesus, he realized that all of his accolades and all of his accomplishments were nothing in light of the power of God. When I first started uh, going to church, God surrounded me with incredible leaders and incredible people to, to mentor me and disciple me. And one of those was a lady named Miss Duncan. And Miss Duncan was, was an older lady. She was a single mom of three kids. And uh, she worked at the summer camp with me. And I remember she always was kind and she was always sweet in what she said. But the last week of camp, Miss Duncan revealed something about her life to us. Miss Duncan had won a statewide championship for arm wrestling. And of course, we're like, we don't believe you, right? Um, you're like a sweet old lady who we love. And uh, you are not like, you, that's not who you are. But I promise you, the last week of camp that summer, Miss Duncan arm wrestled every single guy in the camp and won. I highly doubt that today Miss Duncan's at the same arm wrestling capacity. But so many of us find ourselves looking for power and security and things that won't last. If we had more zeros in our bank account, right? If, if our, our family looked more like the one down the street. If, if I could just get that next promotion, then everything would be okay. But the reality is, guys, none of that will satisfy us. It'll feel great in the moment, sure. But those things aren't eternal. Eventually, they just fade away until we get fixated on the next thing that we think is going to give us strength and give us power. And I don't know if it was the moment on the Damascus Road or, or maybe it was those three days where Saul had some time to think, but even in the midst of everything in life that he held to be true being taken away, there was one truth he could hold on to, that he could only move forward by anchoring his life to God, that it, all of the power and all the control had to come from God. So, so much so that we read on and Saul is healed and filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized and goes on to preach to, to hundreds of thousands and, and lay his hands on people and do, and do miracles. And, and his identity goes from Saul to Paul. But this power, this power that comes from God only came from choosing to lay his life down, to put it all in the arms of a powerful God and say, God, you can have control. 
this morning, um, as we, we close and we move to prayer, uh, I just want to just challenge you. Maybe you're in here this morning and you would say, Amber, I, I feel like Saul. I feel like I've messed up too much. I feel like, like I, I've gone too far. There's no way God would want to use me. Or maybe you, you feel like Ananias this morning and, and you just are trying to be faithful with what you have, but if you were honest, you've kind of held back from, from being all that, that God's called you to be. So this morning, I'm going to ask everyone to stand and if our prayer team will come down towards the front. And this morning, as you stand, I just encourage you, just find a place where you can be still for a second. And this morning, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to ask three simple questions as we close. If you're in here this morning and you would say, Amber, I feel like, I feel like God's trying to get my attention. And, and, I, and I've been kind of pushing him away and pushing him off. But this morning, I know he's trying to speak to me. I know he's trying to get my attention. If that's you with nobody looking around, will you just lift up your hand? Thank you. Maybe you're in here this morning and you say, you would say, Amber, um, I feel overlooked. I feel unlikely. I feel like the, like the last player on the bench. I feel like the last person God would want to use. If that's you this morning with, with nobody looking around, will you just lift up your hand? question I want to ask is this. Maybe you're in here this morning and you would just say, Amber, I'm tired of holding everything together. And I need the God who holds it all together. I need the God who has infinite strength and power to come and invade my life. I need something to change. If that's you this morning with every head bowed, if you'll just lift up your hand. Yeah. Yeah, all across the room. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray, and then as the worship team begins to sing, if you lifted your hand, just make your way down here. There's, there's nothing special about this spot, but the, the fact that you're going to move from your seat to come up to the front is, is an act on your part of saying, God, I'm ready for you to do what you want to do. So I'm going to pray, and, and then if you raise your hand, make your way. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you invade our lives. God, that you get our attention even, even when we're not, we're not focused. God, that you, you care about every detail, even when we're not paying attention. So God, I pray this morning that you would help us to focus our attention back on you, back on who you say we are. God, that we wouldn't view ourselves as unlikely, but instead very likable. God, the, the likable choice, the, the person you want to use. And God, I pray for those that lifted their hand this morning and said, uh, I just, I need the God who holds it all together. God, would you show them that you're not only capable, but willing to be everything they need. So Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you, if you lifted your hand, make your way to the front as, as we begin to worship. God of creation, there